Hey there, this is Dave Canise. I'm the creator and host of the Agents of Innovation podcast. I've spent the past 30 years deep inside the global innovation economy at the intersection of brand strategy, design, management consulting, venture capital, product, marketing, and executive recruiting, working with visionaries at hundreds of the world's great companies and the startups on the way to becoming tomorrow's most exciting ones. I've coached hundreds of leaders through job searches, personal branding, and the reinvention of their careers. One of the biggest things I've learned on my journey, products, brands, services, experiences, and technologies that become world-changing, life-changing, and industry-changing only make it from idea to reality because of agents of change. I call them agents of innovation. This podcast was created to introduce you to them. We'll explore their stories and their superpowers, and I hope they inspire you. Thanks for listening. And please reach out if I can help you. You can get me anytime at dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. That's dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. On to the show. In today's innovation economy, there's a war for talent out there across every industry. The companies that win are the ones that can attract and retain the best people to build their products, services, brands, and businesses. The best people have a plethora, did I say plethora, of career options to pick and choose from. And for them, it's no longer enough for a company to offer great compensation, equity, interesting work, a friendly, secure, and collaborative culture, a convenient location, office amenities like a nice gym, a full kitchen with free food, cold brew and kombucha on tap, a foosball and a ping pong table, and nap pods. Companies now also need to offer new kinds of benefits that can help remove stress and burdens from their people's lives, especially as they become parents. One of the fastest and nascent growing sectors of the innovation economy is parent tech or fam tech, where companies are building new marketplaces, services, products, and technologies designed to help parents better juggle the pressures of family and career. I think that these aren't just sectors, this is a movement, and the companies in the space are truly in a position to capitalize on major societal trends happening right now, like more balanced gender roles, generational change, and more women in leadership and C-level roles. Jen Rubio, who's the CEO of Travel Brand Away, recently said that it's important to change the perception that starting or having a family has any impact on a women's ambition. And companies like JP Morgan, Spotify, Uber, McDonald's, and almost 200 other businesses have formed a coalition focused on ensuring that women are not held back in the labor force because they bear the brunt of caregiving in the U.S. So today we're going to try something we haven't done before, and that's a panel discussion with three guests. I'm excited to welcome three agents of innovation who are pioneers in the parent and family tech sectors to today's episode, and they all happen to be women entrepreneurs. So Jennifer Nadelson, who's the CEO and co-founder of Scout, that's scoutitnow.com. Brittany Barrett, who's the CMO and co-founder of Kinside, that's kinside.com. And Charlotte Michaelitis, who's the CEO and co-founder of Parenthood Ventures, parenthoodventures.com. Makes sense, right? Um, hi, everyone, and welcome. Great to have you all here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get right into it. Um, I want to talk about and introduce kind of this parent tech and fam tech space to everyone. Uh, what's happening in it? What are some of the trends? And even, you know, more importantly, the size of the prize uh, now and in the future. Um, and I'll turn to Charlotte from Parenthood Ventures first um, to talk about the size of the prize and the addressable market here. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for having me. So, uh, as you say, first of all, uh, just sort of defining the sector has been something that's been a bit of an emerging conversation for those of us that work within it. Um, FamTech is sort of an emerging term for those scalable products and services that serve the needs of modern families. And I think there's sort of three subsectors or pillars, if you will, within that, one of which is uh, parenthood and obviously those of us here today are sort of um, all oriented around around that piece to serving those needs of the modern parent everything from you know fertility through the teenage years but there's also importantly um, aging so um, all the services emerging around uh, improvements in care for for the aging population and as well as disability so I think possibly the most overlooked of all within the FamTech sector is is solutions serving those with different abilities, whether it be um, you know educational solutions or people with um, physical disabilities and so on, and really stepping up 
there. But um, within the parenthood space, which is sort of the focus of, of those of us uh, today, I think it, it's ultimately it's a massive it's a massive industry today, and I think there's a tremendous potential for growth. Not because people are having more kids per family necessarily, but I think, as you said, it's sort of this movement. I think there's this cultural shift that's happening that's changing um, consumer behaviors and driving growth. Um, in terms of spend as it is today, I think you're looking at about a trillion dollars in total spend um, on within the US on, on kids up to the age of about 18. And if you strip out accommodation and health, it's about 600 billion in spending on all of all of the things, you know, the, whether it's food, clothing, activities, technology, you know, all of the different elements that go into um, having and surviving uh, young family, young family life. And that and that's just spending right now. I think if we think about the, the potential for growth um, into the future, you know, the New York Times published some information recently valuing unpaid care um unpaid labor essentially if you even if you value that at sort of minimum wage you're talking about almost a trillion dollars more that is currently activities that are done maybe it's grandma stepping into babysit a couple times a week or maybe it's uh, parents staying up late into the night to complete tasks that could be outsourced or there could be a solution to and and i think that's sort of where you're going to see um growth because of uh and that sort of activities that happen today and i think um, there's also this other piece around behavioral change of not just necessarily bringing in solutions for activities and actions that people are undertaking in, in their lives today, but also um, as we enter a world where there is greater acknowledgement of mental health and, and greater um, value placed around wellness and, and, and so on and quality time being spent together and, and, and so forth, I think there's, there is actually potential beyond that, beyond just um, providing solutions to these norms and, and activities that we're, we're used to doing um, right now. It's amazing. Everything you said in there um, really talks about a major market and a massive opportunity there. Um, trillions with a T, hundreds of billions with many, many, many Bs on that. And you talked about care and activities, which I think are great lead-ins to both uh, what Scout is doing and what Kinside is doing. Um, let me Go to Brittany on the care side. You talked about, um, you know, the massive size of prize for care. But Brittany, with Kinside, what have you seen uh, with your team? So with my team, the size of the the care industry. I mean, the first thing that you're you're going to notice when analyzing a market like the care market is that it's about sixty billion dollars in total, which I think Charlotte may have mentioned. Um, but none of that, none of those funds are really being passed online yet. So these are still offline businesses for the most part. Um, you have a couple of really, really large chains in the market, and then the rest of it are these individual business owners. Um, and what we've seen is parents spending um, their number one source of spending um, every single month in the childcare space. But finding that care is incredibly difficult. Actually, um, they're getting put on wait lists, having to delay return from work. So it's a really complicated space that um, prior to Kinsight, there was really no technology devoted to. Um, and that's kind of where I would put the childcare space in its development so far. And trust is obviously a, an incredibly important part of that. So being able to not only find, but to be able to understand how other people have reviewed and feedback to that, right, is incredibly critical. That's absolutely right. It's something that every parent is kind of just crossing their fingers and hoping for the the best most of the time when they're dropping off, you know, their 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 most prized, I wouldn't say possession, but um, off in the hands of somebody else. And up until now, there's not been an easy way to actually get access to the license information for daycares, preschools, camps, after school program. There's really been no transparency. Um, in terms of how safe these places are. And for the most part, these are people that have gone into the industry because they absolutely love children and they're, they're largely safe, you know, fantastic facilities. But um, there does need to be more oversight. And that's one of the things, one of the first things that Kinside went about building um, when we created our marketplace is just this state-by-state um, childcare vetting framework that analyzes a license's history and a license and visitation reports from from the state representatives that go in and really uh, check out these places. So trust and transparency. I mean, I remember um, dropping my oldest daughter off at 
you know, her first day of daycare when she was very, very little. It was a long time ago. And um, we got to the place and walked in and turned around and walked right out. And, you know, wish we really had had that information, ultimately found her some great places through the years, but not having that information, um, you know, really hurt at the start. Jennifer, how is um, Scout handling all of this? And what are you doing as a team? So uh, we look at this um, as a huge opportunity with employers. And just to quantify a little bit, our own calculation shows that the average company loses in employee productivity about a million dollars a year with parents searching for activities uh, for their kids to do uh, effectively, I would say, during work time. But as you alluded to, David, we're now looking at employees in their as-is state. I like that phraseology, and it may throw people off a little bit. But what we're saying is we're taking that whole employee. And they have a home and a life that they have to manage, and they're going to do it in the times they can. So when we calculate this, it's an average company of, let's say, 2,000 employees. It's about a million dollars a year in lost productivity spent just trying to do what Brittany alluded to, what you need to, what Scout helps you do uh, to solve for, which is finding activities for your kids or, or you know, child care. And what have you seen in terms of customers so far, not just the companies, but kind of the employees in these companies who are accessing Scout as a platform? Is it predominantly women, predominantly men? What's what's the situation there? So I think for us, it's, it's about a mix. Um, still majority women using Scout as a platform. I think instinctively they think about this. Women, uh, probably to Charlotte's reference, a little bit around the mental load, tend to multitask in this arena. So they have to think about multiple different layers of things as as they're trying to uh, do their work. So um, we mostly see women using it. What was interesting for us is um, we offer this as obviously a B2B benefit. We see a lot of people using it on the weekends and the employers that we work with um, who are our customers are thrilled about that. Uh, So they're very excited to see that their employees are getting benefit out of it, not just during the working day or the working week, but all through the weekend. So that's been uh, a pattern that we're seeing quite a bit. So still helping their employees, you know, juggle and manage, but also, you know, not just get things done, but get them done at, you know, a high level as well from what it sounds like. Some of the trends that we were talking about um, offline before we got on here were ideas like more balanced gender roles, kind of the equal distribution of parenting workload and kind of that partnership at home. Charlotte, can you speak a little bit more to that and what's happening at Parenthood Ventures with that? Yeah, sure. So I think we're in this amazing transition period, essentially, um, where there you millennial couples and soon to be, I mean, you know, Gen Z's right on their heels, um, are approaching their their life as couples on a you know totally uh, sort of genderless um, way. And then there is a bunch of data that shows ahead of becoming parents, at least two thirds of those couples do have a strong aspiration to to co-parent on a, you know, a gender balanced sort of equal way. What we then see though, is after the fact, only about a third of those couples today are succeeding in that, in sort of meeting that goal. And I think it is part of the shift towards a new set of solutions for parents. You know, it, it, it makes things harder if all the information comes from the mom group or the, the bottle tracking app only allows for one login. There are these design decisions as, as that essentially create this compounding effect on the way that we manage our families. Um, and, and then that does very much link into the, the sort of the origins of, of parenthood ventures, which is, as one, probably the most unsurprising thing, uh, stems from my entry to parenthood my, myself. So, um, I have two kids, two and a half year old and a nine month old Corona baby. And it was really that entry point to parenthood. We had a bit of a rough start. My son required some very serious uh, medical intervention, which thankfully went wonderfully. But it meant in his early months, I spent a bit more time than I otherwise would have really sort of digging digging in and sort of helping him with different therapies and so on. But also it gave me that time where my hands were quite occupied, but my sort of brain was uh, sort of pretty available. And as I looked around the the mom classes or the parenting groups in San Francisco, I was struck by how even those families that did have a smooth transition into parenthood and had healthy, you know, children and so on were really, really struggling, especially the dual career households and very much willing 
to seek out new solutions that would serve these acute pain points. And they were, you know, they were grasping for them and just not finding what they needed. And as when I stopped building out my own ideas list of things that I might dig into myself, I, I started to realize that this is a market failure, essentially. And part of that, I think, stems from the fact that as in any sector, the people best placed to build the, the solutions that are really fit for purpose are those who are or have recently lived the problem they're trying to solve. And definitionally in this sector, who are those people? Well, they're parents. They're, they're parents of young families who are, you know, and let's face it, one of the most financially vulnerable moments of their lives bit sleep deprived, you know, all of these things come together that sort of have kept them at arm's length from many of the um, infrastructures of the, the tech ecosystem. And so that was sort of the inspiration for Parent Adventures, which is a founder ecosystem for early stage parent tech. So founders building products and services for parents and kids. Uh, you know, we serve everything, connected devices, fintech, digital health, education, entertainment, you, you name it really. But Providing a home where those founders can come together, meet one another, share resources, and, and you help direct them towards sources of investment if that's the path they take, and, and and so forth. So very much about entrepreneurs kind of building something around problem that they're facing acutely. Um, I've always said that working mothers are my heroes um, because you know they're really doing more than two full time jobs, and you know they're always doing much more than the father no matter what anyone says and hopefully don't i don't get um taken out by a bunch of fathers for saying that but um i've always found that female founders are you know the smartest most customer connected experts i see um you know they're also deep subject matter experts but i actually think they've got this you know um, need to work harder to prove themselves. Uh, Whitney Wolf um, from Bumble recently said, um, you know, kind of unfair held to higher standards um, and a lot of discussion out there that has come around that. Um, Jennifer, have you seen that in your career to date? Has that been something that has been a problem and an issue kind of directly for you through the years? Absolutely. I mean, I think in some ways I would argue maybe slightly more indirectly um, in that I don't. I think probably our generation um, hasn't struggled as much as the generation before with sort of direct um, sexism or bias. Um, but I think it's a little more subtle. Um, and certainly in my own experience, um, having, uh, you know, been uh, pregnant and actually uh, gone up to the 11th hour before delivering my first child. Uh, so actually in my office within three hours of actually delivering a baby, um, uh, is certainly leading up to, to my third trimester. There were a lot of sort of sideways glances, I think also for men and from women too. Um, and a lot of interesting misaligned expectations about what it would be like for me to return to work and how I would return to work, uh, where my mind would be. Uh, so, a lot of questioning. Uh, and so to your point, I think both yours and Charlotte's point, you had to kind of double down. You had to actually do more. Uh, so I had to be on that 7 p.m. call. Um, I had to be, I happened to work uh, in healthcare at that time uh, to uh, have meetings with surgeons. I had to be there before OR hours, which was between 4.30 and 5 in the morning. And you had to do it. Uh, and I had at that point an infant. Um, but, you know, that wasn't something I opted out of. And I knew that if I, if I did opt out, um, I would be judged. So there was a subtlety to it um, that did pervade um, a lot of my work. I think it has gotten better. I think there's more engagement. I think what's also changed is um, amongst sort of people's professional schooling in many places, medical school, law school, business school, the classes are 50-50, if not tipped a little bit more towards women. And I share this stat because I know it well that the majority of People, we'll call them patients for the sake of healthcare, actually prefer female physicians. So the majority of medical schools are now disproportionately, ever so slightly, admitting female applicants. Where they are over the arc of their professional career is a different question. Um, but there is certainly a proclivity in the professions, and it's increasingly happening in law firms too. Women prefer female attorneys. Um, so, uh, so I think things are changing, but we're not sure where it will change in reality. And that's, that's a question that we're all trying to tackle, um, which is to help parents deal with this other piece, this, this uncompensated work that particularly women, but parents in general are really facing. Yep. Two full-time jobs, three full-time jobs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Charlotte, you had something to say about that as well. 
Yeah, no, uh, just one follow up on that, which uh, 80% of our teams at Parenthood Ventures have at least one female founder. Uh, but interestingly, you know, that leaves a, a decent number who do have, we're seeing a lot more dad founders. And, and I would, I'd like to just, I guess, say a couple words in defense of the, the dads as well. And I think, you know, as well, the rising number of whether it's two dad homes or whether it's single parent families, you know, for the, when dad has, the, the kids, I, I think part of what's going to bring change in this sector is getting the dads, at least in the conversation, designing the tech product so that it is something that he can pick up and use as well. Because otherwise you end up with this compounding situation. I think you, one absolutely has to meet the customers where they're at today, which is majoritively a female decision maker, a female user, but also build for the future of parenthood. If we do aspire for that to be um, one in which anyone can pick up the solution and use it, whether it's grandma or the nanny or hopefully very much dad. <laughs> exactly. Brittany, you had something you wanted to say about that. Absolutely. I think um, one of the biggest misperceptions about fam tech as a larger sector is that it is a sector that's geared totally toward women um, or that women are, you know, the people leading the charge. And I think that so many women are dealing with that problem. But really, the way that we solve these issues is by serving the entire family. And exactly like Charlotte mentioned, creating tools that everyone can use that don't require this sort of like baseline of knowledge that only the mom has and keeps to herself. It's benefits like paternity leave equal to maternity leave or like Kinside that um, allows either a man or a woman to be to, you know, have all the tool, the same tools to research a childcare um, option. And we find when those tools are available, men do use them. So for us, we know that 50% of our user base are actually men um, who are looking to do something um, and to contribute more evenly um, so that their family life feels a little more balanced. That makes sense too. And when you say FamTech, I think it's really important to not uh, conflate it with FemTech, right? Which actually Absolutely. probably a lot of you know investors, particularly male investors, may you know say right from the start. How has the reaction been that you've had from uh, prospective investors, VCs, and things like that, that to not only uh, the companies that you're building, but um, kind of the sectors as a whole? Jennifer, what have you seen so far? So we we get a tremendous amount of of positive feedback. You know, we are approaching folks that tend to be a little bit younger in this space, some of whom, I'll say many of whom do not have children themselves. So it's a little bit of a mental leap where we're really seeing some traction, which is a super important uh, issue for us is around the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And so um, we are able to not only talk to investors about that, but obviously customers who come to us, we've actually gotten in through the DEI space uh, because those are C-suite, if not C-suite reporting spaces with autonomous budgets to independently uh, generate energy around their efforts uh, and retain um, and attract, obviously, a, a broader sort of subset of the population, not just women, obviously, but underrepresented minorities. So that's been a huge piece of our conversations with investors, too, is how much the FamTech space plays into the DEI space. It's super interesting. What have you seen with that, Brittany? So from an investor standpoint, we definitely um, we definitely have had some of our biggest supporters be the women in the space. So I will say that um, typically, you know, the people solving these problems uh, or the people that recognize these are as a problem um, are the people that have experienced them personally. Um, so we could walk into a room and we have three male investors who, let's say, maybe they have children, but they have somebody in home because they're at a certain uh, they're at a certain, you know, level of income, whereas there is probably also, you know, the one woman in the room who's like, hey, wait a minute, this is a huge problem and it does need to be solved. And it's those people that have really taken us to the next level, fought for us to get where we um, where we needed to go. Um, and the same thing while we're selling into companies. Um, it's such an obvious uh, it's such an obvious purchase for anybody who's had to search for childcare before. And if you've never gone through that process, you're like, I don't see that being a big problem. So having other people that do actually have had those problems um, and being able to bring it to those groups instead of somebody that's never experienced is, is important. And it's one of the reasons I think we haven't gotten further. So could I make a little comment to that, which is, 
um, it's hugely important, I think, in our space for you to have an ally, an ally in the room with you. Um, so Brittany just referenced it. We now, uh, not only are we in our sales calls to customers, but obviously in our investor calls, we actually purposefully try to get an ally in the room with us to talk about this because without that voice in there, we're, we're, we're swimming upstream a little bit. And that ally, by the way, can be male, female, can be, can any number of, of things. Um, but as long as they've had this experience, that makes a huge difference for us. So someone who understands yeah, the problem, the you know, the need the problem, firsthand yeah. and gets it as well. Um, you know, as one of the themes that's really come up um, throughout our conversation here is, um, you know, the women in leadership roles and the growing numbers um, of women across um, leadership roles in all kinds of industries. And, you know, one of the things, you know, whether you all know it or not, as um, female co-founders of companies, um, you're role models, right? You're people who are breaking ceilings, you're opening doors, you're lifting others up. And I think, um, you know, something about that is how did you get where you are? How do you balance work and life? What are some of the big learnings you've had uh, from your career? careers. Um, I'd love to start with Charlotte on that kind of, how'd you get to where you are now and what was the path you took? Um, yeah. So my, most of my career was actually in, in business strategy at the Boston consulting group. That's how I landed in the States. Definitely wasn't the original intent to still be here this many years later, but they, they supported me through um, Harvard business school to get my MBA. And then I transitioned into um, I was always in the sort of tech and media sector w within there, but I sort of transitioned into early stage tech, um, mostly through taking a position at a, a Y Combinator company through the, the program and onwards. So that was sort of my immersion into the tech, the early stage tech universe. And as I say, it was that transition into sort of parenthood itself was sort of the inspiration to then dig in um, to this sector as a whole. Very interesting. What about you, Brittany? So I started my career off um, in probably not the way that uh, most people that end up in tech do. I was actually a financial writer, uh, writer and editor. Um, so one of the things I used to do would be to analyze um, analyze a business's market potential and kind of report on why it was interesting to invest in at that time. Um, and I would say that it's almost unrelated, but at the same time, it's really paved the way to where I am today. Um, because when I did start getting involved in startups, the first startup I worked at was like an Uber for dry cleaning and laundry. I was the first employee um, at, a, at a company called Washio, um, but really analyzing, okay, why now? What makes this an interesting business? Um, and what can we do to get there even faster? Um, so it really did contribute to the way that um, I've always thought about working at companies, which is like, okay, where do we need to go? Where is the market pushing us? Um, and and um, definitely Kinside was a natural extension of that, like just seeing the huge hole in the market that needed to be filled um, and why there was so much potential in it. So that's kind of how I ended up where I am. You also had a business, uh, sorry, background as a comedy writer as well, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I did. I see that you have been looking at my uh, LinkedIn there. Um, yes. So when I first moved to Los Angeles, I, I did write comedy um, for some for a digital platform called called Mad Adams. I can't say that's really positively uh, contributed to my tech career, but it is still something I enjoy a lot. And I think uh, humor is important uh, in leadership because it makes the workplace a more enjoyable place to be overall. And that's something that I always try to keep in mind um, is that, you know, everybody that works for you and with you is a person. Um, and I think we're moving more toward a bringing your whole person to work trend generally. Well, any leader, any entrepreneur has to be able to connect with people. And sometimes that's with facts. Sometimes that's with funny things, right? Absolutely. Jennifer, Jennifer, what about you? What about your path? Wow, that's great. So I, I'm glad I get to follow uh, Brittany because I, I feel like I, I downright did not have a career plan. Um, and so it's happened really organically. Um, I, I started uh, life school-wise actually getting a master's in city planning and architecture uh, and took that for a while, uh, then went on to get an MBA and do some stuff around uh, looking at healthcare and higher ed, which is where I spent sort of my beginning years. I, I will say there's, there is a theme here. And so to Brittany's point, the theme is that I, I look at large, complex systems and structures, and I sort of streamline them. Um, and so if you were to uh, talk about, you know, what, what it is that I do that's a consistent theme, I'm able to take sort of large, complex 
data points and sort of figure out what are our next critical steps to move ahead. And so in some ways, logically looking at the world of let's take healthcare uh, and making that analysis and going, wow, this is just uh, unfixable. It, it turned me into an entrepreneur in a second. Um, I just said, you know, there's got to be a better way. I'm not sure that better way is for me to stay in healthcare, but there were other ways that I felt like I could touch that space. And so I think we all genuinely feel, and you're, you certainly, I'm sure, can hear this in this conversation, we care about and are passionate about the problem we're trying to solve. Um, and so for the, me, this was a logical extension to take this large, complex thing, try to streamline it and figure out a smaller solution in our space, knowing that we're, we're going to have other partners all around the Famtech space also trying to solve the bigger the bigger problem or opportunity um, that parents um, were facing. And so that's that's kind of sort of my broader arc into into getting where, I, where I'm sitting right now. What's fascinating as I hear each one of your stories is they all have a theme around them of connecting um, kind of disconnected dots and finding things that normally wouldn't have a lot to do with each other, but finding a way to put them together in a way that not only creates something new and compelling, but also solves some major problems. Um, and I'm always fascinated with careers and how that works for people to see that type of thing. Um, you know, as you look at all the different things you've each done through your career so far, one of the things I'm always interested in learning about uh, from entrepreneurs, uh, but also successful people, are what they see in companies and what they've learned as keys to success in a company, right? What, what separates um, not just, you know, strengths from superpowers and good from great, but ultimately who wins and who doesn't. Um, Brittany, what have you seen so far kind of through your career as keys to success in companies that have done well versus those that haven't? So I think the, I mean, the, this one is not going to blow anyone's mind, but it's just true that listening to your customers is the most important thing that you can do and really paying attention to your customer behavior. That is almost always the difference between the companies that succeed and the companies that don't. Um, and I think also figuring out how to scale something early. Maybe you're not making money on every single transaction in those early days of being a tech startup, but at the same time, you need to have a plan how you're going to do that down the line um, and how you're going to move into monetization. And every time you should be getting closer, every rotation should be a little bit more efficient. Um, so to me, it's those two different things. Like always be talking to your customers, get your found, get your hands dirty, um, and always be moving toward toward something that scales. So I think um, definitely with something like a uh, dry cleaning and laundry <laughs> startup, like I worked at really early on, um, we went and we launched across seven markets really, really quickly. Um, and I started to notice, hey, we have to vertically, like we're going to need to vertically integrate if we start to make money. And there was a sense ultimately that we were waiting um, kind of until... Um, that we were so focused on growth that we kind of didn't pay attention to the financial piece of it. And when you wait too long to, you know, actually take that and monetize it and make sure that you're making the money that you need to make, it can sometimes be too late because the sector has switched. So in that particular sector, I remember everything was meant to be on demand and that kind of collapsed really quickly. So my lesson from that was always be understanding how you're going to be able to, you know, monetize your product. That's right. It's called a business, not a nonprofit, right? And that's often a difference, particularly in a startup. Uh, one of the themes you talked about there was listening to customers and everybody nodded their head when you said that. Um, sometimes, you know, listening to customers, if you don't have a good process for it and really understand the art and science of doing it can push you down a wrong path. Um, Jennifer, how have you done that um, through your career and what have you learned well, there's there's so many ways. I mean, obviously, uh, ha having done this in the healthcare space, there's a there's a lot of um, structured ways we listened to uh, patients and their concerns. Sometimes effective, sometimes not effective. Um, but in Scout, um, obviously, as a startup, we started early on with, uh, uh, fortunately enough, organically getting a thousand users on our app early on and getting a ton of feedback through focus groups. We use our own network. Uh, actually, that's the best way to do it, I think. Um, and we prefaced it and said really directly to everybody, you got to tell us straight up. 
Um, so we know, you know, we know you like us and we know you're super excited about this space. I and mean, one of the things we got was, oh my God, I can't believe this is actually happening. This is so exciting. We really wanted and encouraged people to tell us straight up what they thought. Um, so we were able to collect a lot of feedback. Um, obviously we continually survey all of our customers. It's part of our contracts with our, with our customers that we're going to do that. Um, so I agree. There is no doubt that without real feedback, you're never going to, you're never going to achieve success. I will say to that point, and it's, it's going to sound contradictory, but it's not, I, I think you do also have to stay sort of as it were, mission aligned. So you're going to have to say no to some things that customers ask you to do. Um, and that's super hard because, uh, we're always struggling and we've actually had to at times say to customers that that's just not our model. Um, and we're not probably the right place for you. So you've got to stay really true to, to that, to that. I wouldn't say vision, but that sort of mission and agenda of, of moving yourself forward. And when you say mission, you really mean, you know, not just company purpose and the problem you're no. out to solve, but really strategy and the direction that you've set. Absolutely. And I, and I kind of lump that into mission, you know, because I view that as so critical to the foundational structure of, of the company itself. That makes sense. Uh, Charlotte, what have you seen and learned, um, not just around, um, you know, listening to customers and understanding them, uh, but also keys to success that you've seen throughout your career so far? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in this sector in particular, many founders come to the problem they're solving um, through a very acute personal experience, often, you know, acute enough that, that, that that's what spurred them to, to, to dedicate a chunk of their lives to building something, uh, whether it be extremes of sleep deprivation or a breakdown of a marriage, which could have maybe survived if they could have, you know, struggled through or, or what, what have you. Um, um, and I think one of the keys then is stepping outside of that to find that broad, shared problem among a much wider group of let's say millions of families in a way that maybe the nugget maybe there's sort of a kernel there that, that speaks back to that single experience of your own personal family but thinking um, about how that applies more generally you know in, in slightly different circumstances in slightly different families who take a different approach to things and, and sort of finding that scalable piece that can then create a self-sustaining um business versus a local solution or a super niche solution. I think that's one of the things that can be challenging in the space. And I think, um, and then uh, you know, as we sort of touched upon building a business model that then allows the thing to sustain itself. And I think part of that in a way has to face some level of historic stigmatization of charging for things that help families. You know, nobody, at least in America, shrinks at the idea of charging for healthcare. I'm British. To me, We're overcharging <laughs> for healthcare, right? At home, it, it's sort of it's pretty taboo. The idea of charging people who are suffering and sick—that's not okay. But in America, we're fine with that. And yet, when you think about solutions for families, things that um, help people get more sleep or address an infant's reflux and all of these things, there is still this stigma around paying for a solution to help you with that versus struggling through it. Um, and so I think that's something that a founder has to get past that, not in their stomach. Like, is it okay to charge a customer to solve this need? And I, and I think we're, we're slowly getting there when you think, when you then see the testimonials of customers who really value the fact that ultimately maybe a solution enabled them to maintain their career, which, you know, reaps massive financial reward versus never getting back to work. And um, I think it's, you know, it's okay to think of the business case, whether it's the business case of you as a family, as a customer, as a parent, or as a founder of a scalable solution, to, to think through a way of making sure that you can actually survive and serve customers. You talked before also about the kind of societal shift um, around it now being okay um, and encouraged to ask for help. Whereas before that might've been something that people, you know, didn't want to do, didn't want to kind of break the illusion, if you will, that, Hey, you know, I, I've got this, I've got it all under control. And now it's, you know, entirely not only okay, but actually expected for people to do that. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. And especially COVID, I think, and all these video calls has, 
made it viscerally clear to people's managers and and you know and 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 to, to people's peers and to everyone the fact that families have been drowning in trying to maintain what is you know an increasing um uh desire for dual career households and 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 just struggling with a, an absence of structures to help them with that especially with more and more families living in maybe a different city from extended family and there's you know historical sources of, of unpaid help jennifer you were going to say something about that well so and i think i referenced this before this concept of the as is employee you're now taking the employee where they are as they are presenting to you and you're talking about the whole person and so we talk about the empathetic employee employer. Um, people are talking about vitality around this and creating a vitality around the space of the employee. The other thing I want to talk about briefly, which is which is sort of about taking that further, um, we talk to employers about this. As they're thinking about that, there are other things they may not, to your intro, David, be providing. They don't need the foosball table. They don't need, you know, beer o'clock. They don't need parking and commuter benefits because things are shifting. They're reducing office space, the most obvious. And so there are many ways that they can shift that benefit dollar to, to helping employees. And they're getting that. I mean, we, we know that because our customers are, are coming frequently and saying, we have some resources now. We actually want to invest in a place that is taking that as is employee and giving them tools that they actually need. And we can do that because we're eliminating a lot of the expenses that we don't really need as much. Fascinating. You know, you're each building something um, or some things as the case may be services, experiences, products that, um, you know, people can't live without. And hopefully very soon it's millions and billions of people that can't live without them. Um, You know, as entrepreneurs, as founders, as leaders, you all have things that, you know, you can't live without things that you have to have day to day um, that make your life easier, that help you get through things. I'm really curious to know, you know, what some of those things are for you. Brittany, what, you know, what are kind of, you know, things that you must have that help you out and help you do what you have to do um, at the high level that you have to perform at every day? So I want to make sure I'm answering this question correctly. I know for me, I think um, we have been moving away from from a structure, especially when in a startup structure where we all, we all have like assistants and somebody who answers our phones for us. Um, so, I, so I don't operate in that type of way. So I need as many tools as possible that kind of fill in that blank so I'm not wasting my day on things that are super unimportant. So small tools like, um, for instance, Calendly, that somebody just, can just go on my calendar and book a meeting instead of doing four emails back and forth trying to find a time. Uh, saves me an infinite amount of time in my day. I'm constantly having meetings um, from a sales perspective, from a marketing perspective. I'm meeting with people all day long. That's a huge help. Also, there is a tool that I definitely want to wrap. It is called Reply.io for any entrepreneurs out there who are looking to sell their product. Um, it's really a phenomenal tool. It creates this really, really easy way of automating um, automating emails and it reads them for you to maximize the amount um, to maximize how readable they'll be the chance of reply. Um, it creates these flows and it saves me, I would say 30 hours a week, <laughs> like minimum in just like prospecting and trying to find the right people and um, making sure I have those touch points. So those two, two, two tools allow me to do a lot of things that I would have to, uh, that I don't think I'd be able to do without them. Wow. Amazing. Charlotte, what about you? Um, similarly on the sort of uh, working from home uh, efficiency tool. So Calendly, I love Calendly. People um, can can hop in and I don't into my schedule and, and, and I don't have to spend a lot of the day coordinating meetings. Zoom is kind of a kind of almost like so obvious it's not worth mentioning, but I don't think I could have built and scaled parenthood in the way that I have in the pre-COVID world, because we have founders everywhere from Berlin to Australia, very much centered in the US, but it allows us to be open to, to anywhere. And it has allowed me to, you know, I personally onboard every single founder, every single investor that's in our network, every single, everyone. <laughs> and I can do so extremely efficiently without having to leave my house. Um, so couldn't live without that. And then I have to say, you know, as a, as a, um, a parent who built this through pregnancy and pandemic delivery and now, you know, um, 
here she is at nine months old, plus the toddler you know, running around. I think some of the tech tools for parents have been great for me. So um, I know people go either way on it, but I use Owlet for both, with both of my kids to get over, especially the post-NICU transition to home. I think that secured me a lot more restful sleep than otherwise I would have been able to get. And then Caribou, for example, has been wonderful for parking my not parking but uh, in, enabling my toddler to interact with his uh, extended family back in England um, which you know who he hasn't seen for a long time my infant daughter still hasn't met but has been um, you know wonderful in, in building that connectivity even across the Atlantic. Jennifer what about you? Oh, so I'd have to go last. So aside from my dog, who I take early morning walks with, so I would consider him a tool, um, I would say other things that I enjoy uh, are not going to be surprising. So to Brittany's Calendly, um, we use Slack a lot as a team. I actually think Slack is a great tool. Um, so we enjoy it a lot. Um, I've actually been, I, so I, I, I don't know if I can name them. I've been uh, betaing a few um, early uh, apps uh, for folks. Um, and some of them are really great tools around communication. So this is a piece um, that Scout is also exploring, which is the concept of community. And so I've actually been baiting a few apps uh, around community. So David, we'll catch up later and I'll, I'll tell you about them. Um, but I think that that's a piece that parents also, we can create communities in different ways. Um, and so Facebook has its own, but you can think about ways for parents to connect on parent-related activities that still creates a meaningful connection they can do that in work with other parents, and there's lots of ways this this can go. Um, and so Scout's been super excited about some other functionality that we're going to introduce, um, and there are a lot of people playing in that space. So um, I've been uh, looking at a lot of different tools. All of those are super interesting ways um, to not only stay more productive but help you perform at a high level. Um, one of the things that I've found with entrepreneurs and particularly founders and leaders that's also really important is um, staying informed and staying inspired. And one of the things I'm always curious about and always ask about are things that inspire you. That could be people, that could be media, that could be podcasts, <clears throat> that could be shows, that could be books, whatever those things are. Um, what are you know some of those things that give you insight and information um, that help you you know do what you're doing and do it better, Jennifer? So um, this is a good question. I actually just finished a book. I mean, there's many people that inspire me. So the list is really, really long. But I literally just finished a book um, by a woman who's a is a well-known chef. Her name is Erin French. And she has a, a restaurant called The Lost Kitchen, um, which is up in Freedom, Maine. It's an 800, uh, 800 residents of Freedom, Maine. She has one of the top-ranked restaurants in the Northeast. And Anthony Bourdain, when, when he was with us, visited it. It's very well-known. Um, it's a really interesting, her own story is incredibly interesting. She is an entrepreneur. She had many, many setbacks, gripping setbacks um, that many people would have buckled under. And she, typical to David, your narrative about women entrepreneurs, she just kept coming back um, and has become incredibly successful uh, and incredibly committed and dedicated to not only like her craft of, of, of running a restaurant, um, but to her community, which is really compelling as a story too. And I'm uh, also in Maine is my favorite state. So that's why I always try to make a plug for Maine. Very cool. What about you, Brittany? So I, I, uh, I am not legally obligated to say this, but my, my co-founder Shadi, I find to be really incredibly inspiring. So she is truly a woman that I think lifts other people up. She, um, she and I connected about Kinside, um, really while we were working together at her last startup. So this is her second, this is her second startup. Um, the first one where we met called Honeybook just became a unicorn. Um, she has a really incredible background where um, she grew up in, you know, Mexico city until she was seven, came to the United States, ended up going, you know, to the Harvard Kennedy school, just like a real bleeding heart um, who, entrepreneur who really like leads with need. Um, so I absolutely love that about her. Um, and she always just has this incredible enthusiasm, um, for everything that she's doing and, um, it's, it's contagious. So I really admire her as a leader. And then, um, from a media standpoint, I honestly do read the times every single day. I know that it's like not the most popular, uh, a lot, it's not the most popular or efficient way to absorb your news, but it's something that I think does give you an idea of sort of like 
where the world is in that helps us entrepreneurs stay tied to it um, and and follow the trends that we're seeing. And I actually am also a a rare business owner that loves loves some good fiction. Um, I do think it helps us be more empathetic and to view the world from other people's perspectives. Um, and I always find myself sort of days after a good book being able to inhabit other people's you know intellectual space and and understand where they lead with. And I think it helps me be a better leader because it allows me to relate to people that I might not um, be able to and, and help manage them more effectively. Fascinating. What about you, Charlotte? So I think the founders that I interact with every day are sort of probably my primary source of inspiration and validation really of the thesis of what I'm building for and, 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 the, and, and the needs that have, historically been sort of underserved among that group. Um, another great one is uh, an advisor of mine, Amy Henderson, who recently um, wrote a book pending um, about parenthood and the future of work and ways in which actually that transition into parenthood shifts your perspective in a way that can be valuable to you in your work life as well. So rather than just seeing parenthood as a distraction from work, actually sort of seeing it as something that, that can be a really positive transition. Um, Lolita Taub um, writes some great stuff on Twitter and elsewhere about underrepresented founders and just sort of expanding the universe um, of venture, whether it's uh, among uh, v the VC universe or whether it's founders and, and, and getting them up and running in ways that maybe they've struggled to sort of tap into the, you know, the old networks and, and that sort of stuff. So they would probably be um, the main things. And then I'm a BBC junkie, um, I guess, inevitably. <laughs> so despite, you know, what is it like a, a, over a decade now in the US, that's still my primary news source. Nature and nurture coming, coming there, right? <laughs> Exactly. Um, a fascinating conversation today. Um, one of the things, you know, that's come through in every podcast I've done so far is that, you know, the world is changing, um, in the innovation economy, especially. Um, but really what came across today in our conversation is that, um, roles are changing in careers and in business, and there's no such thing as a one size fits all, um, approach to careers and companies and organizations and roles anymore. And, you know, clearly what you're all doing in the femtech and parent tech space um, is going to change lives um, for many, many people, improve lives, improve the way that they're able to function and perform in business. And, you know, the sheer size and scale of the world and universe of people that you can help is staggering. So you're all doing great things, but um, as this sector goes, it's one uh, definitely to watch. So, you know, all of your companies are doing great things and are going to, you know, continue to do great things and grow very quickly. You're all clearly um, agents of innovation. And I want to thank you all for being here today and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank, thank you for having us. This is great. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Thank you all. Hey, this is Dave Kniez, the host and creator of the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode, and please reach out if I can help you. You can get me at dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. Again, dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. Thanks again for listening.